0: Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Nicholas McKay of Eclectic Spacewalk. We talk about the overview effect, the dangers of overarching narratives abstracting away from particulars, connection through storytelling, making the invisible visible, information flows, open source everything, the second psychedelic renaissance, and his hope for a moon base. You can find more of Nicholas's writings on Substack and Medium. Follow him on Twitter at eSpacewalk. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Welcome to my conversation with Nicholas of Eclectic Spacewalk. Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host Alex Mershak. With me today is Nicholas of Eclectic Spacewalk. Nicholas, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Alex, great to be here.
0: It's so good to have you. And uh, you know, we've we've known each other for uh, quite a while over on Twitter. And uh, you know, I'm happy to uh, always let my audience know when I'm, when I'm finally getting to meet a longtime mutual. Um, it's always just a fun little thing, especially for those of you who are listening who are also sort of in the Twitter sphere as well um it's always good to connect virtually if not uh hopefully in person at some point all right um so you know one of the reasons i was really excited to talk to you today is that uh, i find your project to be super interesting and i just wanted to learn a lot more about it Uh, i like to interview people who are doing interesting projects i've interviewed Jeff Schollenberger with his outsider theory which is another uh, online project uh that's sort of in similar similar shared spaces to ours, although his yep. is a little bit more academically focused. Um, so I wanted to just right off the bat ask you about the name Eclectic Spacewalk. It's quite an eclectic name. So uh, <laughs> is there an origin story behind that name? How did you come up with it? What does it mean? Tell us about it. Sure, sure.
1: Um, yeah, and first off, thank you so much for allowing me the platform to come and talk to you guys, uh, your network and stuff, because like you said, we have been kind of going across the digital sphere and, uh, always been appreciative of your kind of disparate thinking and also eclectic mind, you know, uh, from a lot of different places. So definitely appreciate that. But yeah, there is a little bit of an orange origin story, uh, not to get too far, but basically I was a, a former journalist. That's what I went to school for. Um, you know, basically did that, uh, got out of mainstream media and, and, and all of that kind of started working and, um, touring and marketing when I lived in Chicago and then kind of fell into, uh, Moving to LA, you know, as one does, you know, and so using marketing and storytelling and my background, and it all kind of came together. And I just started kind of having an, a yearning for uh, almost putting together like uh, uh, a mashup or a roundup of links that I've just found interesting, you know, books I was reading, podcasts, you know, just for just for anyone really family members, started off as groups of friends. And uh, yeah, it just kind of I, I started thinking about uh, doing it more. Um, Formally, you know, it's like uh, and so I put it on medium. I basically that was you know, three years ago and then mm-hmm. I did that for about a year when I was traveling around and uh, Just nothing kind of came of it. And then one day I was talking with the, another tour manager and and basically we were talking about just words and I had, had an affinity with the overview effect and, and we'll get into that later uh, sure. but it's basically the uh, the view of seeing the earth from space and I just like, you know, I, I've always wanted to be an astronaut since I was a little kid, like that just kind of resonated with me. And then I also had kind of the epiphany of that I had been grown up in this WASPY kind of like, you know, world, went to a college prep b- boarding school, but then had a lot of experience like living in different class neighborhoods in Chicago, New York, LA, you know dealing with a lot of different races creeds, everything. And so it, it was a, a lot of different ways of thinking. And then I read this neuroscience study about how people from different cultures see art. And, and basically in westernized uh, cultures, if you you basically look at any type of picture and you will look at the objects. You will look at like if it's a barn or a person or a you know wh- whatever the objects are in the painting. But then, if you're in Eastern, you know, cultures in in Asia, et cetera, um, you th- you see things in more processes. You see more less materialistic. You see the the connection of the you know wind or something, you know, those kind of things. And so when I saw that, it was kind of a light bulb moment. Is is that there's not really one you know thing to learn. You know, it's it's more of a process of how to learn. And then I just kind of made a a, a kind of connection between the two of that. I kind of wanted to go forth in my my own personal journey and learning but then bring along other people with me is that you know i want to start from square one as being in space and looking down on earth and then starting from the formulation of a baseline of that no one thing is going to be uh you know the answer and it's going to be you know from all over the world it's going to be an emergence of eastern western indigenous historical etc so those kind of things uh kind of came together and then you know, got more serious about it. Got, started a Substack. You know, and then all of a sudden, now we we look here. You know, two years later after that, and then. We have a production company. We just got hit up for a licensing thing for a short film by NBC News in London. And some other. You know, so things are like slowly but surely coming together and it's been a long road. But to culminate uh, all this is it's still an ongoing process. So I actually am gonna start in the fall uh, at the University of uh, München uh, or Munich is um, I'm gonna be going to grad school. So basically mm. I'm gonna go back and, and get my master's in responsibility in engineering science and technology. So all of this is kind of a long story to a continued story. This is not a uh, finished story. And so the name is is wanted to compose of elements of all different styles, methods, you know, kind of the, the juice and the life of humanity of Earth. But then take it another step of um, cognizance of that, you know, when we when we. Look down on earth from from space. Only six hundred people in the history of humanity, ten billion people in you know two hundred thousand years of humans existing have only seen the Earth from space. And that's like, you know that's a light bulb shift, et cetera, and we'll get into that. But those two things are the are the biggest reasons why that came to be. And then now we're here talking about it, you know? so,
0: <laughs> yeah, so sort of a survey, wanting to survey the whole, the whole realm of human experience Very good point. in a sense and encapsulating in that, in that sense of looking down on the earth. Um, and yeah, we will get into the overview effect, uh, shortly. Um, but I wanted to drill down a little bit more on what you said there about sure. thinking in terms of processes, uh, instead of, let's say, um, you know, objects or, um, you know, isolated, uh, observation of things. Right. Um, one of the most actually recent episode, uh, we just released was on, uh, the philosopher Heraclitus, who's one of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Okay. What's interesting about Heraclitus is he, uh, obviously, he lived a long time ago, and so the language he was using was not really quite updated for our current lexicon. But he's uh, regarded often as one of the first processor. I'm sorry, process mm. philosophers. Okay. And the reason is because he talked about uh, his theory of flux, about everything being in sort of constant change. And, uh, you know, nothing really being the same. He's famous for the phrase, uh, you can't cross the same river twice. And so Ah. when you mentioned the sort of differences between the Eastern and Western modes of thinking there, uh, it reminded me of Heraclitus because Heraclitus is actually one of the, I would say, lesser known Western philosophers who actually did embrace that idea. But, of course, was superseded by uh, Plato and Aristotle and others who are much more well known and in many ways gave us the sort of um, object specific framework that we're working in right now
1: that's very i mean uh, one of the things that uh in in my logo we have um it, it's kind of, if you look at our logo, you can kind of try and see an encapsulation of what we were trying to see is it's like a space guy on the moon looking and the earth is behind him. And in the two holograms, because we wanted to show low tech and high tech kind of deal, uh, there, it's Confucius. So we kind of talked about that, East, you know, Western thought, Eastern thought, but then I also put in Hypatia. So, mm-hmm. you know, she was a, a Greek philosopher, you know, around, you know, in or at Athens, et cetera, around the uh, library of Alexandria. And she was actually, you know, one of the going toe to toe with the the men, as they say. And so like, you know, as, as we, as we want, you know, role models, et cetera, for, you know, women coming up, I thought that that was going to, you know, a huge thing that not, not a lot of people knew about. Um, and so in the eclectic nature, a lot of the stuff that we, we talk about to, to moving forward is, uh, you know, people and subjects that not a lot of people have heard. And so I'm glad you, you bring up heraclitus. So now I'm going to, you know, go down a rabbit hole myself and probably listen, start off with your own, you know, podcast. So.
0: Oh, well, right. I appreciate that. You should <laughs> definitely take a look at it. He's only got 129 fragments, so you can get through them pretty quick <laughs> and, uh, gotcha.
1: Gotcha.
0: and and get a really good idea of uh, his whole philosophy there. Um, exactly. So let's get into the overview effect. You mentioned sure. it already. Uh, the metaphor of the overview effect is already built into the logo. So it seems to be a very central idea to your project. Uh, can you tell the audience real quick just what the overview effect is and how it sort of influences your work? Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So basically, uh, if you if the overview effect is is the psychological um, effect, if you will, or the overall encompassing effect of what happens when an astronaut see or a person in space, which is by definition, an astronaut um, would see the Earth from that vantage point so imagine if you really get out there to the International Space Station or the moon and then look back on earth so I wrote a, a piece about this and there's basically four you know main um, factors uh, of this that I wanted to kind of like push push forth and that's the void and so when you look at this um, you look out and there and there's not um, stars in in the in, in the main kind of background it's it's the earth is kind of just hanging in a void it's very uh, uh, I guess you could say, um, it, it's, it's just hanging, sorry, the, it, it's hanging there just by itself. That's one of the, the, the main things you get from it. The second is that the the, the fragile atmosphere. So basically the, if you look at the, the atmosphere, it's very, very thin. And so that is the only thing that is between us and basically the death of space, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also third is that there's no like borders, you know, a, a lot of nation states, nation states are a, a very, um, You know recent phenomenon in the 18th century you know uh you know 19th century really getting going and so you don't really see you see geographic borders but you don't see like you know uh or sorry geographic barriers but you don't see borders and then fourth um it's like basically when these astronauts come down they have a unique connection with the earth So that means everyone and everything on it. So those four things are really this like monumental, you know, break in the uh, psyche of anyone that's gone up there. And so I thought that that was a very, you know, revelatory thing um, for a lot of different reasons, not just for the person that's experiencing it. Um, One of the astronauts said that the best thing we could do is take all the politicians up there and say, look at this, you son of a bitch. You know, uh, uh, I think uh, Mitchell was his name Um, and then But the biggest thing I think I want to to take from this is is through the documentary, The Overview or Planetary. Um, One of the philosophers had a very point, uh, a very good point that basically stuck with me is that this is the first time that when we saw the Earth is that the Earth saw itself. So now we are really as a species, as a planetary organism, whatever you want to call it, have awoken up because basically since the 60s, that was not possible other than theoretically. We didn't really get satellites up there to then show us that, hey, you know, we actually, you know, this is what it looks like, et cetera. We could only pause it. So the overview effect is a very powerful thing that I think individually is a unique kind of way to reassess how personally you would feel uh, about the Earth and the world and the systems and the processes that, that we talked about. But then even more so, I think it's uh, more for as a society and a planetary civilization at the highest of levels, is that a lot of people, when they look at the overview effect, they think it's looking out, you know, we're, we're in the stars and looking out. No, that 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 is that we can never get beyond our observable, you know, kind of bubble, because if, if science is correct right now, the universe is expanding, and it's increasingly expanding. So we will never get beyond, you know, what is exactly in our influence already by the definition of the space around us increasing. So we already know that. And so we should basically look away to then inwards, you know, because it can only like Mars, Venus, the solar system, you know, going to Alpha Centauri, all very interesting. But the real interesting thing is the fact that we got up there and technologically possible to then completely look back in on ourselves individually, but then the societally about where we want to go. You know, what do we want to do? Because I think that's the, the biggest uh, lesson out of all this is that, we are capable of the techno futures that that are in our future. You know, we are capable of the good ones. We're capable of the worst ones. We're capable of the middle ones that are more bureaucratic. We're capable of all these. But to really start, you know, I guess being uh, an agent, and actual having some agency in in the world in, in during this Anthropocene, then. Uh, you know, the overview effect is an interesting heuristic that I think can ground us rather than continue to looking out into the stars and everything. I think that that is something that can look out, but then it grounds us in our, in our earthly being. So I know that that was very long-winded, but I hope that that was, uh, at least touched on, uh, on most of the points.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, so one of the interesting things that, uh, that you brought up there was that this the the sort of different ways of thinking that this change of, of perspective can can have on people right you said yep. that it, it really influences these astronauts when they come back down to earth they they view they value the earth a lot more they value their communities a lot more now that they've spent this time away but also there's a sense in which all the petty problems and squabbles and fights that we're having on earth don't seem to be quite as important when you're when you're when you're all the way up there. Absolutely. Um and I think those highlight some of the positives of uh of it um, um well for most of us it's a mental exercise, right? We, we yes. not yet can go up not there. Not yet. I hope. I hope <laughs> Alex we're gonna be up there
1: soon. <laughs> but
0: one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit though is that there is a, a sort of a negative aspect to a uh, ch- change shift in perspective, which is that when you when you get that much when you get that far removed, uh, that can have a tendency to, uh, abstract away yes. a lot of the real concerns that you might otherwise have. And so it's very easy to paint, I, I would say a rosy picture about, okay, well, let's just have a borderless world, you know, let's yep. just get over our problems and all work together, yada, yada. Um, but I, I think one of the hard things is that, you know, there is this real, this, this, this reality of, uh, of, of, towns, of cities, of communities, of cultures, of countries that we live in and that have their own concerns and issues. And all of us have our own lives that we have to worry about as well. Yeah. And those can't just be abstracted away by an appeal to some sort of universal ideal. Oh, we are all on this, uh, you know, on this earth together and therefore we should just get over ourselves. Uh, what do you think about that critique that it's yeah. really just a way to kind of feed people this uh, really abstract narrative that's actually in some ways the opposite of groundedness, because really, you know, the the everyday experience of, of our lives is contextual, right? We're yep. all situated in a particular place with a particular life history and particular situation. Um, and so I, I worry because sometimes these very universalizing narratives can escape Uh, be a distraction from solving real problems and actually serve to feed people narratives that are not necessarily in their best interest. What do you say to that? Right.
1: No, I I think it's a fair criticism, to be honest. Um, I think it's honestly like uh, when you think at that level of um, I mean, we're talking about planetary level. I mean, Mm. I think that also we're at we're at the bleeding edge so I think that that's also when we when we talk about this in our language, we're also talking about the scales. Um, so one of the things that I think c- coming out of this overview effect is more of the this um, thing of uh, two two things. Is I, I wrote another essay. It took it took me about a year of doing this because that was my first essay, the overview effect. And then by essay eleven, I did uh, an essay called uh, "Updated Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth." And Buckminster Fuller being one of my biggest influences, he wrote a book in the sixties called uh, "Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth," and it kind of is that same thing that that you know you abstract this whole deal out to the and then give this book for everyone to to go by and the updated operating manual is more of an inverted of that it would be thousands upon thousands of communities kind of coming up and it's really to what scale are we talking about and i think cosmolocalism is kind of the maybe the the through point if it goes from the top of the scale all the way down to what you were talking about the grounding um, cuz if if these aren't linked then yeah, you don't really have that grounding. You just have some abstract thing in, in the uh, in the clouds, as as they say, some great idea with and that's uh, very great in theory, but then no actuality. Um, I think one of the things with the overview effect specifically is um, that I think it it also can well let, let's back up a little bit because like for me i'm not necessarily saying that as you as we kind of started going down that everyone needs to um experience this i at once thought that that because i wanted everyone to do that you know what i mean i was all rah rah everyone get in the space and then honestly if we're all being completely honest i still have a stretch life goal of you know making a uh, a moon base that is all about culture and and like celebrating you know humanity's greatness and all this other jazz but regardless of all that it's really like how do we ground ourselves in the policies of that? And I think one of the things is the language that we speak of and the scaling of that. Um, when we do that, it, it's very, very easy, as you said, to abstract all this stuff away. But I think one of the things that we, we need to do to, to, to link it is to show how that makes sense. And I think one of the ways that makes sense is at the top level is like awe. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 not necessarily like a specific thing of like, you need to do X, right? Like, it's not a prescriptive kind of thing. It's more of a like, like you said, a changing of perspective. And it more is going to be for the people who almost are so inclined to be entrenched in that. And it's more of a, yeah, and then we can talk about this later. You know, I wrote an e-book, the the name of the ebook that I published is Tripping Over the Truth. And we can kind of get into that. But um, that's kind of the idea is that, Yes, I don't want this to be an abstraction all the way to where you know it becomes the antithesis of what I want it to be, and you don't become grounded in, in everything. But I think one of the ways we do that is in language and talking about scale and then also being very, very honest about like what it is that we're doing. And I think one of the biggest things is not some prescriptive thing. I think it starts with awe and maybe not the frontiers, you know, kind of mentality of colonialism or conquest or whatever, but more the ingenuity and the togetherness of the human species of like, holy shit, like we're here talking together over, you know, computerized landlines that are going around the the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's more along the lines. But yeah, I get that critique. And that's going to be one of the, the biggest things that, you know, proponents of it are going to have to, you know, be, be ready for to, to speak on.
0: Mm. So this gets me to my next question. What exactly do you view the goal of your, I'll call it an intellectual project, being? Oh, I like you know, that. Obviously, like you're that. multimedia. You're doing podcasts. You're doing writing. Uh, you're talking about even some movie production uh, in your future. So Hopefully. <laughs> what exactly is the telos of this? Are you starting a movement? Is this a explicitly political project or do you view it as something deeper?
1: Honestly, um, and I'm not trying to be too callous and, and personal, but it's all me right now, to be honest. Like this is all like me just trying to navigate the world. And like honestly, like agora politics, I think that's one of the things that uh, that uh, you know got me to you and all these other people. It's like I am I am fascinated and drawn to people who are getting after it in their own way, whatever the hell they're doing. You know, I don't care. Like it's it's like I'm just interested in you doing what you interests you. And so this is like what really interests me in that I had this, you know ear to the pavement, journalistic upbringing. I was very interested in all these things, like reading a lot, but then also now I've kind of not in to get this, you know, journalism to activism, but it's like, now I've kind of gotten into this journalist to like storyteller. And so I think the biggest thing, and I, and I wrote some stuff down just to kind of, you know, map this out to help me kind of explain it out. But um, in a few words, it's, you know, really connection through storytelling, I think is really kind of the the project. Um, And a bit longer term, like uh, we're in the middle of doing it, you know, I'm heading to grad school to, you know, do this, get a little bit more academic pedigree, maybe hopefully, you know, publish some original academic work, like you're familiar with. That. and and at least for myself not get, getting out of the imposter syndrome of you know believing my own bullshit you know kind of deal um the biggest the biggest uh thing out of my intellect or the, the intellectual project though i think the goal is to foster a sense of intellectual humility um mm-hmm. you know you don't know shit you know what i mean no one knows shit and it's like and the quicker you are to figuring that out and the quicker everyone else is the quicker we get to the 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 goose's gander, or the, the end of the rainbow or whatever, you know, you want to, to call it. So, I mean, basically how we're going to do this is is like like you said, it's mostly a multimedia project at first. Um, we want to interview people, um, you know, in interesting people, podcasts, etc. cetera, um, writing longer form essays. Um, and then a lot longer uh, do some short films and stuff like that. But really, it's to be a resource and like a producer of eclectic content that I would want to you know enjoy maybe ten years ago that when I was coming up or I was interested in it and stuff like that. and that's what I'm really doing and it's and it's not j- like again, it's not like telling you how to live your life or telling you how to think. Um, it's really telling you how to think about thinking or how to you know, go about living your life to then getting better about living your life because, There's certain ways to there's certain paths that are more fruitful than others at certain metrics. And like you said, very contextual. Um, And I know a lot of this is coming off as lofty as fuck. I know a lot of it is coming off as grandiose. I know Um, a lot of this is coming off as like idealist, you know, and and, uh, can't we all, you know, dream a little bit. But um, one thing I want to mention is, like, what is a rubric of success for us? You know, like, what it, what the what the fuck does that mean? You know, um, well, it's really just to make people think, you know, and challenge people to become more like active global citizens in what, you know, the greats and the intellectuals of old have called, you know, the great conversation. Like, yeah. what is going on, how the world is being made um, within their capacity? Because, you know, a lot of people going through, you know, life are. At certain levels of you know privilege, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then really to like seek out that connection and find it online or next door, because I think one of the things that uh, the uh, overview effect um, is kind of synonymous with is like it's almost like you could be, you know closer to um, someone in Shanghai. You know, because you're better with him and on an online community than the person next door. And that's good in some ways, you know, to open your mind about things like whatever. Well, that's shitty as fuck in the real world because I live in Los Angeles and it's like, for you know, when when the fires start coming and the earthquakes and stuff, the, the police and the fire are not first responders. Your neighbors are your first responders. Your family are your first, first responders. So like that kind of thing, it's like you can never – take out and and your neighbors around us. And and so I think that's one of the things that I want to highlight is that, you know, some of those stories could be next door. Some of those stories could be, you know, across the planet, but we can never get past that they're interconnected and they're inseparable. You know, you can never like come out of that. And then honestly, if we're doing a stretch goal, you know what I mean? If we're really thinking pie in the sky uh, for some of this, I wrote uh, to highlight the stories that are not just visible and need more light but even more important things so ubiquitous that they are invisible. So making the invisible visible, because a lot of things and a lot of people are already working on making smaller problems, you know, uh, see the light of day, you know, et cetera, like that. But there's a lot of things that are just behind the veil um, through, you know, non-transparency, uh, you know, manufacturing consent and all these other things that that happen to the, uh mess up information streams for the common you know person. So that's really the goal is to to foster connection through s- storytelling, through a m- multimedia kind of way. Um, and then yeah, we're still on this goal. You know, we're happy to continue to collaborate with people. Because um, again, this is like a two-year project and I and I consider this something that I most likely will do for the long term. Uh, even if it's not professionally, I will be doing this on, on my own time to interviewing people that are interesting for the rest of my life, because I think lifelong learning is one of the tenets that, you know, we ascribe to
0: as well. So. Yeah, well, uh, that was a, a great summary there. And uh, <laughs> I I, try. that's what we're part of what we're doing here with Agora Politics is uh, we're trying to, you know, get more human perspectives on the table. And uh, and also overcome some of those barriers of uh, of non-locality, right? I, I totally agree with that, that I've had closer relationships with some of the people that I know who live nowhere close to where I do uh, than I do to necessarily some of my neighbors. So I can relate to that as well. But of course, we're all, you know, by necessity, all, also dependent upon the people that are around us. So it's yep. important not to neglect, neglect that either and pretend like we're all just going to live in some virtual space. So uh, let's let's bring things back down back down to earth, if, you will, <laughs> if I may. Love it. <clears throat> and uh, you know, obviously from your writings, uh, not all of this project is focused on these sort of pie in the sky ideals and 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 sort of just you know abstracting away uh, you know into space. There is a sort of a futuristic space themed element to many of the many of the posts that you make, but there are also considerations. You talk a lot about. Um, you know, issues of economics, issues of, uh, you know, just general game theory and and, and the way in which uh, a lot of the systems that we have set up aren't necessarily set up to encourage human flourishing. You know, I would say that from my perspective, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize human flourishing. That's at least a value that I hold. That's part of the goal of Agora Politics. And I hope that came off uh, in at least the conversation that I know you listened to with that I had with Jim Rutt, where we were yep. talking about Game B. Now, Game B is sort of his, uh, I would say, pet project or conceptualization of alternative communities or alternative ways of being and of, of of organizing human civilization that could appear in the future and has a similar goal in terms of, you know, it seems to me as if the, the main aim of, of Game B is, of course, to optimize human flourishing. Um, So with that being said, I wanted to get into some of your views about the way in which some of the current systems that we have in place are creating, let's say, let's be charitable and just say barriers to that or obstacles. Um, One of them specifically is, uh, you know, our financialization. Uh, You talked specifically about, um, you know, economics, and neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism is a term that gets thrown around a lot. I actually have a whole uh, a YouTube video where I go into the, the history of neoliberalism as a term and why how, how it gets thrown around and, and misused in many ways uh, today. But I, I feel like it is appropriate to ascribe it in, in some circumstances to the kind of movements that are going on right now. Right. But how do you view issues like the monetary system, or uh, let's say, you know, international trade or banking? Uh, how do you view these economic um, incentive structures that are in place as barriers to moving to the sort of next phase of human considerations and human flourishing that we're all trying to work towards? Hmm. I know yeah, that that's an a open-ended question. question. Take it however yeah, yeah. you
1: want. No, no, no I, that's that's great. Honestly. Um, yeah, there are a lot of things that that I mean. I, I guess here, here I'll start off with two quotes. How about this? Because this is specifically what what you kind of asked for. Uh, the late great Aaron Schwartz, you know, the founder of Reddit, he you know committed suicide because he was. Basically, the FBI threw the book at him, but uh, yes. there were things that could be changed and they were things that, more importantly, were wrong and should change. And once I realized that, there was really no going back. And then the late, great David Graber, uh, the anthropologist who passed away last year, Utopia of, of Rules, is the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it's something that we make and could is just as easily make differently. So I think that's really like what what um, what I think about a lot of this stuff is, is that if we started this over from scratch today to make mm-hmm. the most efficient – the the best that, you know, took all the, the, um, the, uh, the history and everything like that. If we were making it today, what would it look like? And, and that's like a very, um, techie, kind of iterative, you know, additive matter manufacturing way. But I think that's a good way to kind of see a framework. But then also it really is, um I just wrote an essay about technopoly, which is you know, uh, Neil Postman talks yep. about you know basically like how you know each culture um, kind of ascribes you know d- different things to different technologies. And I think that's kind of um the the way I see it here is that like just the uh, uh, just the, Ability to talk about this like we are, you know what I mean, to define neoliberalism for a lot of people to really um, get down to it, and and so I, I want to take your your question in an open-ended way, is that like for me it's it's I'm kind of going for the lowest common denominator in in a lot of certain ways I think about people that like are disadvantaged in the information streams and, and stuff like that and, and what, what what do they need what 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 do people in in rural Tennessee where my mom grew up where she didn't have running water till she was you know 16 years old you know that was 1976 and that, and they are dirt poor in the middle of an opioid you know pandemic etc and that's just one microcosm and a whole other microcosm so when I see you know global systems that are entrenched even in the the most, you know, even, in you know, zip codes in the middle of nowhere, it's, I think the knowledge is, is the, the biggest thing, but then also the pipeline to action. I think what we just talked about with overview effect, you have this abstract theory, but then what happens to get it to action? Um, and I think one of the barriers uh, that is plaguing our world really is just like transparency or non-transparency. I mean, corruption flourishes because of that alone. Um, but then at the same time, a lot of things that happen are right out in the open. But, you know, tax havens are, are right there. You know, what I mean, everyone knows about them. Everyone sees it. And so it's just like but that's just dependent on your politics. You know what I mean? Uh, about like what you kind of see that. Uh, um, and so um, there are a lot of different barriers that are, um, I guess, you could say stopping this kind of human flourishing. And I have some takes. But to be honest, for me, is that I don't really ascribe to them to be my own. I'm really just on, on this path of journey and, and self-realization just like everyone else. You know, I'm reading them and, and trying to make them bigger. And especially I look for eclectic ideas that, that are specifically, you know, either in the way of, of things changing or maybe could be the key to unlocking it. And I'll give you an anecdote to this is, you know, back in the day um, when they would put like logs to go down the river – You know, and they and they would like basically uh, it would like make an artificial dam sometimes because they would all get clogged up. And so basically they would have these crews, these specialized crews that would go out and find the quote unquote key logs, the key logs. And those were the ones that were like specifically, you know, entangled that if you took that out, then efficiently, blah, 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 mathematics, flow dynamics, everything will be good. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to kind of. Is mine, you know, all these different things, and kind of come up with these specific things because I know that neoliberalism is a problem in some ways. Now, do I know the answers? No, but I bet you, but I bet you, David Graeber or some of these other like new thinking economists have something to say that that are, is more nuanced, more thought through, has taken through the history. And I'm not saying to to lock on, you know, hey, I just believe in everything everyone else says. I'm saying that the synthesis or the conciliance of, of these things is is coming. But they're transparent. It should have already been here. It can already be here. We we could be living in the human flourishing, but we're actively not because the human flourishing is only as uh, William Gibson said about the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Well, human flourishing is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Like I grew up in a in a you know. I grew up very blue collar, you know, but then I lived the American dream basically. My dad went from, you know, being an accountant to vice president. And then all of a sudden I went to go into a private strep boarding school in high school, but then that was from a test and I started off going to public schools. But then, you know, I go to college in the middle of cornfields and then there's all these like life experiences for me but then I know that that's for other people, but that can happen through ideas. And so one of the things that I think that that really um, is what you're trying to nail down is like, OK, great. How can we get from this theory and these ideas to then actually doing this actual change of uh, you know, action of hearing? And I think one of the biggest ways is to shine a light, you know, like I said, make the visible vis- or the invisible visible and then make the visible that's like right in front of our faces. It's too front. Then maybe we need to go around. Maybe we need to change perspectives. So I think that's really the, the biggest way of how I see um, individuals and then society really um, getting past these barriers that have been re- regardless of whose fault or, or throughout what process. It doesn't matter. We're here. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we're living. So what the fuck are we going to do? You know? hmm. Sorry, I'm yeah. not trying to cuss on your podcast. out. <laughs>
0: it's it's OK. I'll just mark this as an explicit episode. Um, <laughs> I want to uh, I want to stop briefly on a few points that you made there. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I like to let people talk and I don't always uh, object to everything that gets said, uh, whether or not I disagree with it. I'm sure that you and I uh are going to disagree on some things and and, and agree a lot on others we mostly agree i'd say on on many things um one of the things that i wanted to point out to those who might be listening who just heard that um that piece you just gave there is this uh this uh part you said about information flows Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that Mm -hmm. that can be taken um in a sense uh not literally enough in, in fact too metaphorically To think Mm. that we're just talking about let's say access to the internet or access to the right books or the right education or something along those lines Uh, which Uh of course is not necessarily a panacea for solving some of these practical problems that people are facing for example uh like your mother growing up in rural tennessee you know uh, i'm sure the people that are there that are going through the opioid epidemic uh you know they need real uh solutions to their problems they need real jobs they need real livelihoods they need a real opportunity to yep. uh, have a fulfilling life, if they're going to move past some of those conditions that they're in and simply telling them, oh, hey man, you've got, a, you've got an iPhone, you've got an internet connection, why don't you just figure it out? That's not yep. gonna do it for them. Nope. Uh, it's not gonna be enough. And um, But to stop some of the people who might be thinking that this is an indulgent way of thinking or an indulgent uh, type of phrasing things, I wanna just point out, and uh, this will sort of lead it in by next question, That when we're talking about information flows we're not simply talking about uh you know information over wires in terms of the Mm. internet or information uh, in terms of of knowledge inside of books the flow of money is also a form of information flow in fact that's what prices are prices themselves uh in in classical economic terms are information and so When we're talking, when he's saying that the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. I have some objections to that. I don't think it's quite necessarily, I don't think the problems that we're facing uh, globally, at least, are Mm. necessarily at the point where it's really only about redistribution. I do think there needs to be an emphasis on continual value creation and continuing to try to get more with less. Uh, That's through innovation. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I would like to say that it's important to consider that the. Distribution of money, the distribution of economic resources, is also a type of information flow. As you were saying there, with that metaphor about the logs, you know, un, un, unhooking the keys, the key logs, uh, which is funny because it sounds like key logs, and that's a different thing. Uh, Oh yeah, computer software. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) That there might be certain uh, bottlenecks or certain sort of ruts in the system, or minor things that we could tweak where a small change could actually have a huge effect on the overall health of the system, right? right? And and there is a point where the redistribution does become so uh, obscene that it actually is the right thing to make a corrective measure there and try to bring some of those resources that are being sort of hoarded at the top down sure. to some of the people at the bottom because of the benefits that would accrue not only to them individually in terms of reducing their suffering and increasing their quality of life, but also to just society – by investing in that human capital
1: yeah Um, the rising tide lifts all ships kind of kind of idea yeah for sure
0: yeah definitely and so I wanted to ask you then um with that being said about information flows and its relationship to money uh has cryptocurrency and things like bitcoin etc been part of your thinking in terms of reorienting distribution let's say
1: oh absolutely i mean uh for, for disclaimer uh i i bought a bitcoin in 2015 for 210 dollars uh basically <laughs> <laughs> um disclaimer you know what i mean and and basically like i was but for me cryptocurrency kind of was like one of those things and 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 i guess we can kind of uh parallel this with honestly eclectic spacewalk um kind of has come with a rise of 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 me just being interested in different things and i was just interested in you know uh that our architecture of money you know the britain woods agreement you know how did we all get to this you know et cetera. cetera. like what is money and so cryptocurrency definitely comes along and and is some type of uh of light with this um i basically bought one just because i had my ear to the payment and thought about the anarcho-capitalistic kind of like uh things of like rah-rah against the federal reserve and fuck you you know all that kind of stuff and honestly it was just a hedge you know It was a hedge. Like, I'm not into fucking stocks or I wasn't at the time. Like, I wasn't into – I didn't have any 401K. I had no – you know, nothing, you know. And I was like, okay, this is my investment for my future, you know. And Mm -hmm. then lo and behold, (laughs) you know, the rest is history. But I will say this. I did also – a lot of that first Bitcoin, though, was not – it's still not here. I mean I have basically like, you know, a little bit of it, but I don't have it because I was using it. Again, in the ways that I thought it was a use of money, I got massages. I fucking donated to like Barrett Brown's political, you know, a thing. I've donated to uh, the uh, the um, first world's first brain imaging study of a person on LSD. You know, we can get into psychedelics as, as well as like well, again. I think psychedelics is one of the most grounding things that we could we could do in these kind of things. And information flows. Maybe that's a, a connection with that. But um, cryptocurrency, it just. I was interested in it, but then now I think it's just like most things, you know, you're kind of naive at the start, you're, you're gung ho and, and, and things. And then now I see it, you know, being almost co-opted in the, in the same way that, that regular, the same institutions, the same, you know, big players, you know, getting behind this. But the problem is the difference between the, the, the previous money and, the, and cryptocurrency is that there is this like digital sovereignty. Now, when I'm talking about crypto, I am not talking about Bitcoin. And I'm not talking about Ethereum or any one coin. I'm talking about, you know, basically the idea of, you know, digital kind of value. If I want to send something to you, you know what I mean, we should be able to transact. No problem. We should be able to, without anybody else, we should be able to do our own terms. And it should just be in this. And so in the future, for me, cryptocurrency is just going to be the back end and the plumbing of all our future you know, kind of digital banking and all that other jazz. You know what I mean? This is just going to be new economies of scale, you know, all those kind of things. So I think cryptocurrency was just kind of a big, and and Bitcoin specifically was a big like shot across the bow. I think it really like was just a awakening of that things could be different. Some ideas could be um, kind of like uh, changed and utilized in, in different ways. And like, Going all the way back to you know 1999 with e gold and you know the old old you know people in the old peer to peer projects you know and yeah. stuff like that with Nick Zabo and all that jazz. So it's like uh, cryptocurrency is definitely here to stay, you know, whether people like it or not. Now whether or not governments get in and start regulating, whether or not you know people um, start moving into fiat, whether there's a market crash of assets soon, you know, these speculative bubbles whatever. You know, that's kind of all uh, up in the air. But I think cryptocurrency was one of the things that actually said and proved that people could have some type of collective action, you know, and not just for mutual aid about giving some, you know, Bitcoins here or there for people, but actually like, hey, we can all kind of construct this. And that's, you know, the thing of money. And that's a good and bad thing. You know, money is a construct. And so is Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. It's all just value, trust systems, etc. information flows. Um, but yeah, information flows with crypto is a very thing because then now as you've seen is probably the biggest negative uh, with that information flows is things like pump and dumps and IC crashes and like how you know there's a giant move you know 60 accounts that own bitcoin that basically can just you know decide one way or the other and move the entire chain that way you know because they they hold the the most amount of of coins etc so there's a lot in there that like cryptocurrency is now i guess you could say the um bleeding edge, as we talked about earlier, uh, the cryptocurrency kind of information wars of ICOs of you know 2017. I mean, what was a value? What isn't? What is made up? What's you know a real company? What's just a white paper? What's this? Like all that was kind of up in the air, and these information flows for someone to really try and figure this out. It's up to their own wits, and they're up there to their own ways of of even thinking about this, and so. It's it's really difficult to to think about cryptocurrency, and I have no you know ways about it. But the only thing I started doing is started looking out for the eclectic, disparate thinkers. You know what I mean? Like the people who are all t- totally on the right. You know what I mean? And about individual liberty and freedom and. To personal sovereignty to all the way on the left who saw that like this could change the entire economics of the world you know and like you know get people out of poverty and and, and et cetera and all and and then you know then I started getting into people like Andres Antonopoulos who really is apolitical and is just a fucking coder you know he just writes about the internet of money and then that's what he writes about and it's like well then you know so if you put together this kind of eclectic bunch of thinkers then you as a person can have more of a coherent even thought process about even what to start thinking about, not even what you think it's even to start thinking. So I think in one of those different ways, and I think I know I'm saying thinking a lot because this is gone kind of thinking and thinking <laughs> very meta, but um, the biggest thing out of all that is that cryptocurrency information flows are on, the, uh, it's on the bleeding edge of like where humans are in terms of digital technology, in terms of connection, in terms of where we're going. Cause I think um, the future uh is is kind of depend not dependent i don't want to say all that but the future is linked through these because they're they're going to be here in the future it's just whether or not what kind of aspects we bring with it into the future is yeah. really the only question
0: i found that it's very hard to talk to people who are not uh sort of hip to what's going on in the crypto space uh about the impact the real impact that it's going to have and how oh, yeah fundamental of a change it is to human 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 civilization Without sounding like a crazy person, because yeah. it really is a, a way bigger deal than a lot of people really understand. Yep. Um, and, you know, again, no one really knows what's going to win out in the end, whether it's going to be Bitcoin or maybe things built on the Ethereum platform or maybe something else we we don't even know about yet. Yep. Uh, I, I'm not uh, particularly ideological about that uh, myself. The point is, um, you know, money has been around for a really long time. And it's what we based most of our economic activity on uh you know since we stopped bartering with one another and now this new thing has come on the scene which is done through computation Mm
1: -hmm. and it's
0: going to be the new money one way or the other oh yeah and nation states can try to rein it in if they want uh you know china's in the process of banning it right now and i don't think that's going to work out well for them we'll see Mm -hmm. um but ultimately I, i think the technology is too strong to really be stopped by any political maneuvering at this point and sort of the cat's already out of the bag uh and uh i'm just excited about the future um, oh, that's,
1: that's great you say that though i mean because it, it's interesting that um because a lot of people can get very either woo woo or very anti and it's like you know again someone that can actually think about it and 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 interesting about in interesting ways I, i've always been uh, intrigued by but yeah, it's 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 one of those things that just a lot of different question marks, not a lot of answers other than just like what we have and what we have is, is that, you know, you can send over computers, you know what I mean, lots of value to different people around the world. And that's just a fact like it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily like. You know an adage of like uh what we used to do think about like movies or content you know because again like i, I don't know if how much you want to riff on this but, but like i was just thinking when we were talking about this like the 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 emergence the of with crypto i think is like almost like the nfts you know what I mean? This non-fungible token about what is like, okay, what is, what is valuable in the digital sphere? And that's kind of gotten out of hand and like whatever. But I think there is something to be said about, you know, those and like value content and, and especially creators, especially creators like you and I, I mean, mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't you love it if we actually got a market rate for how many eyeballs that actually are looking at this? Cause that's mm-hmm. not, I mean, if you want to argue all the things about information flows or whatever, like we're getting shysted, you know? You know what I mean it's like the people who are you know getting the most eyeballs are the ones that are have the most you know kind of kind of um work kind of maneuvering and capital to kind of put put that uh, there but then also uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Vinay Gupta
0: oh sorry I think you're breaking up a little bit here
1: sorry can you hear me uh
0: yeah yep it's coming together okay,
1: cool. Vinay Gupta. Uh, I interviewed him um, and he's in London, a project called Materium, and he's trying to basically take the crypto world and put it on the physical objects. So mm-hmm. like how to value physical objects, but then in the real world in a more uh, a regular market dynamic. And so this first couple of things are like William Shatner autographed dolls, you know what I mean? Or like Stradivarian, you know, violins that are very, very high in pricing, but then you can kind of like put it online in a sense. And so I look at cryptocurrency, you know, in a very sense, it's like, what if you almost every single object physical object in the world had some type of barcode that is like in some type of you know it kind of identifier and then in some type of way you know it's everything's kind of accounted for I mean that's a very techno materialistic kind of thing but it's like I I don't see that as much as a stretch you know what I mean of what's what's coming down the pipe but I also don't see it as much as a stretch that all the artificial reality uh, the AR and the VR things are not going to have ads out the ass you know what I mean like the advertising is not going to be a giant proportion of uh, of the of the thing so um yeah just riffing on i mean crypto is definitely there like nfts but then also i think at the next level is going to be more uh like physical objects it's really mm-hmm. trying to be quantified in, in that kind of regard
0: yeah well there's definitely a lot of work going on uh with like for example securing supply chains uh, exactly. on chain, right yep and yep. uh and, and representing you know the flow of physical objects from one location to another chain of custody those kinds of things and that will just continue to expand, I I'm, I can only assume. Um, yeah, because so I mean, it's just, we didn't even
1: talk about smart contracts, et cetera. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's yeah. a lot there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, cool. well, uh, let's move on from that, um, cool. just because that's a little bit, uh, you know, I mean, we could spend a whole oh, you know, yeah, yeah. No hours worries. and hours just on <laughs> that alone. Um, I wanted to ask you about this concept called open source everything that I came across. Uh, one of your posts I believe is under that exact title. Um, yep. You seem to, from our conversation so far, have some uh, I say I say anarcho-capitalist uh, leanings, uh, which I'm always uh, I always find exciting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what do you you know? We talked about you. You mentioned Aaron Schwartz earlier. Yep. Uh, he, he himself uh, was you know a very, of course, pro-open source, and in fact was eventually prosecuted by the FBI for uh, basically sharing research research uh you know unauthorized research uh out of his mit dorm room basically making uh you know making scientific articles freely available and they they as you said threw the book at him and that eventually um, caused him to uh to leave us um so you know we talked about information flows obviously you and i are very lucky we're very privileged in that we've grown up in developed you know a developed western world we have access to the internet and so you and I, are, uh, you know, have both had a college education, and so we've been exposed yep. to lots and lots of information. But more of that information is now becoming freely or cheaply available to not just people like us, but to everyone around the world. What mm. do you what do you mean by open source everything, and what <laughs> impact do you think it's going to have on this sort of central theme of our conversation, which is upgrading humanity?
1: Yeah, great question. Um so Open Source Everything, uh, an interesting, you know, heuristic idea that I came across um, through, through, you know, just my uh, ear to the pavement, kind of looking for eclectic thinkers, et cetera, and found this book called um, Open Source Everything Manifesto by Robert David Steele. And um, his background is uh, he was like a CIA spook, basically, you know, and uh, information officer, you know, so yes. he was basically in charge of, like, Intelligence. You know, getting – yeah, 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 intelligence exactly. And so the whole idea is that um, is is that basically right now, information, knowledge, uh, all these kinds of things, especially workable and information that is uh, usable, is basically behind these top-down, command and controlled, ruled by experts, um, hierarch- uh you know, based on secrecy, hierarchical organizations. So, you know, we, you were just talking about Aaron Schwartz uh, recently in the, you know, when we were talking uh, about how he was throwing the book at at him, what is, makes it so egregious um, for that in the open information is that we already paid for it. Like Mm -hmm. literally all that public research is all publicly funded through tax dollars. And then it's through these kind of like journals, like Elsevier and, you know, whatever that like basically take a toll booth. So already it's like, it's wrong, you know, et cetera. And so he was trying to do something you know that was what he thought was right, et cetera. Now I don't I I'm not at that level you know etc. I just more uh, appreciate the sentiment and then you know my essay was more trying to like a rallying cry to the idea because again open source everything is not a prescriptive thing again it's it's more of a philosophy and a process like there is some prescription to it but it's more of if you don't get hundred percent open source everything just because you know just because you don't get hundred percent open source everything doesn't mean it's all for not you know um, basically and so it goes off the idea in Latin is evil Veritai portends from truth. We the people are made powerful. So the whole idea and is to invert that pyramid. You know, in, invert that pyramid that's top down, uh, command and control, uh, ruled by expertise. You know, experts uh, based on secrecy, and then basically implement transparency, trust, and truth across all boundaries. So you can think about a lot of this in, like, say, Wikipedia. Like when we first started Wikipedia, it was. Not that great. I mean, it was decent as an idea, but it really hasn't – it has flourished in the idea of, you know, in 20 years of iteration and constant, you know, backlash and, and scandal and controversy and all this other jazz. But then now as a resource, you can say that Wikipedia does its job that it's meant to be and it's all open source in the idea. Now I'm not trying to get into the mechanics of whether or not the uh um in certain aspects of whether or not an open set, source architecture would be better than a you know a not I'm not trying to do that. But I'm again we're trying to open up the idea is that if in today's world that social cohesion is at an all-time low, trust is at an all-time low with institutions, individuals, everything, civic engagement is at an all-time low. So the people, you know, engaging with the things that then make our world, are at an all-time low. Then what are some of the ways that are is is making that? What are the bottlenecks? What are the barriers? And then that's what I kind of saw is that well, so many things are tied behind these literal barriers, you know, whether they be mm-hmm. uh, uh, payments, whether they be institutional, whether they be cultural, whether they be, you know, like for instance, one of the cultural things that I think a lot about is. Um, is the data that we got from uh, open source science through Portugal after they decriminalize all group drugs? It's like, well, that's one case study, and it's all out there for us. But it's up to us of whether we use it or not. You know, it's up to each individual place. And so, um, open source everything is again more of a process and I and 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 a um and a philosophy. But there is a mechanism that you can employ to then get more policies that are better open source, you know, or more open source on the spectrum, et cetera. And I think one of the things is that he says is that, um, or, and, and then I think we, we, the, the syllogism where we were talking about keylogs, you know, and, and how in, 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 um, in computer software, well, here's another computer software kind of deal. If you're talking about, um, open source and software is that put enough eyeballs on it. No bug is invisible. And the truth at all costs lowers all other costs. So to wrap this up, basically it's like this guy, you know what I mean? Like so, to the truth at any cost lowers all other costs. So if you can just. Have that as the moniker as the one thing that even though we're not going up to one thing, if that's the one thing we kind of go towards, then okay. Um, but then also it's it's proven uh, we've been talking a lot about abstract ideals and how does this work, you know, in the real world, and get grounded to reality. And how does a regular people you know do this? Well, this guy, he he his whole book is an experiment in this, like taking an abstract ideal uh, of he was in the middle of the CIA. Pushing for these policies because he saw during these like, you know, uh, exercises that he was was basically hoodwinked by this um, institutional, uh, I guess you could say, framework, philosophy, culture, training of like this is the way it is. It's compartmentalization between these agencies and no one talks and no one knows what's going on. But then arguably that's how 9-11 really happened. The FBI wasn't talking to the CIA. The CIA wasn't talking to the NSA and then nothing, you know, whatever. And then so, well, that that is one instance where that would have maybe helped uh, a cross pollination of, of talking, but that's just an intelligence services, you know, fuck them, like whatever. But in a, in a sense, it's they did a specific exercise called the Burundi exercise. And he basically challenged David Robert or Robert David Steele challenged the intelligence community and got to the highest of the high, like the decision maker in these kind of like war games, like whatever, you know, the the people that are in the decision room, you know, when uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's getting capped, you know, with Obama looking on, you know, those those people. So those people basically put on a thing called the Burundi exercise. And it was basically the entire might everyone in the three letter agencies the NSA the CIA the DIA everyone and they basically you know agreed to this kind of controlled randomized experiment okay we're going to do a, a specific random thing in a random part of the world in a random kind of thing and then you're going to tell us what how we go about doing this what intelligence we need from what sources not you know uh, specific and what um, where we go go from here and it's so powerful because he, he he did it for five years, 10 years to try and even do this. And then finally they're doing this and the day comes and he literally in 24 hours had given them you know, oodles and oodles of information of free open source stuff from like uh, aid organizations, from libraries in the area, from like real hands-on, on on the ground knowledge, the real intelligence that militaries want anyway. They don't want some fictitious, you know, knowledge that's going to fuck up people and then get people killed. They want, you know, real shit to then actively, uh, I think uh, Mattis uses it as operational intelligence, you know, or operational awareness. It's like, what the hell are we, you know, going into? And, So in 24 hours, the best thing that the CIA could do and the NSA, they had some like world book facts from the 1970s and like three other bullshit sources. And it's like, wait, we the apparatus, the whole military industrial, the whole military intelligence agency apparatus, everything about Snowden, the entire everything, all of that. And then that you know, basically wasn't as good as just open source intelligence that he got at, like, that anyone can get at a library. And it's like, that just completely blew my mind. So again, like, I'm not an expert by any means, but that was like really a transformational, like, you know, light bulb moment of an interesting kind of way to think about things that, wait a second, why why don't we know what, how to do things? The inner processes, that how, how things work, et cetera. And the fact that we don't, um, that should maybe cause caution. Because, to be quite frank, I'm not gonna say that one hundred percent of the time, I, i'm I'm one for you know, at some level of a national security, of some type of operational secrets, especially intellectual property at some level, you know, uh, you know because I'm a content creator, et cetera. But man, like it, the pendulum has been on in one way for a, a lot of different ways. And if it went down the other way to an open source uh, everything kind of thing in an inverted pyramid, Man, a lot of the barriers that you know are in the way of the human flourishing, I think, kind of just start all, almost uh, um, not not only coming down, but like crashing down, like a dam, you know, uh, you know, being um, evaporated through a storm surge. So that's kind of the the big things. But uh, the, the 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 roundabout too long didn't didn't listen to any of that shit. Is that uh, open source everything, even in the most um, uh, hands-on exercise, real-world, non-abstract, non-theoretical way was better in a, a specifically intelligence at the highest of level of what information is um, exercise. And so, if that's the case, then why don't people know about that? And again, it's not like me. I don't. I don't have the answers. It's how the hell do not more people know about that exercise? And then how how have we not? at least started talking about that. And so that's really the the kind of big thing of that. But I'd love to hear what, what you have to say on, on some of that as well.
0: <laughs> well, I would say that uh, for, for most uh, most types of knowledge, in general, uh, when more people know about it, uh, it takes on a positive sum rather than a mm. zero sum dynamic. Mm. Now there are of course ways in which that can backfire. For example, there are, you know there are times when it's important to have a secret, right? And where it could actually harm people if that secret got out, you know, especially when you're talking about military intelligence and things along those lines. So there are, of course, special cases where we do want to keep knowledge limited. But in general, the more people know something, as long as that thing is, you know, the veracity of that is strong, then um, uh, the better the better we all are off yep. overall. So I, I'm pro open source, uh, just in general. Open source most things.
1: Yeah, um, yeah most things. Yeah, because, I mean, the, 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 that's the my caveat. All, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't most things. I mean, I mean, in a lot of that, it's just uh, the biggest thing for me is, like, the emergence. You know, it's like yeah, you know, people think about the new frontier, about, like, trying to tell it. It's like that's, I think, the new frontier is what is bubbling up, you know, in the zeitgeist, if you will. Well,
0: you know, to be honest, I would say that it, there are sort of uh, more nefarious actors who, who are embracing sure. this kind of thing. Sure. Example, Absolutely. The CCP. <laughs> is gathering data on all kinds of things in every possible way from their citizens apple and yeah, and the, the button, way in which so they're doing that is to is to control people, right? Sure, and so sure. it can go either way. you know again, uh, it's it's the curse of knowledge. So uh, I want to go to another type of um, let's call it intelligence gathering, uh, which <laughs> is like a little that. bit more inward looking. at the beginning of this conversation, you talked when we were uh, when we were talking about the view from space, the overview effect. Oh, yep. you said that the point of it, wasn't necessarily to look outwards, although I do think it is important that we stay at that bleeding edge, that we do go after the frontier, but that there's a sort of inwardness component, right? There's a kind of looking inward and self-reflection that's involved in that. One of the things that you brought up already and that we intended to talk about today was psychedelics. Yep. Uh, I don't get too many guests that are willing to talk about psychedelics on the podcast. Uh, I will say that I have tried certain psychedelics before. I'm not going to go into the details about which ones or when. Uh, That being said, I am, quote unquote, experienced. And so I wanted to ask you, given that you brought them up, uh, what your view is on psychedelics. Do they play a role? Uh, I mean, they certainly play a role if we're talking about shifting perspectives. Oh, yeah. Uh, They definitely (laughs) do that. It's not clear to me, for example, that there's necessarily a type of, let's say, secret information that we're getting from psychedelics that we couldn't experience otherwise. Although certainly, I would say that there can be a shortcut to sure. getting at uh, different ways of experiencing the world, different ways of feeling of of being, et cetera. How do you think about psychedelics? Do you think that psychedelics are going to be part of this sort of resurgence in human flourishing? For example, you talked about the information that came out of Portugal when they uh, when they legalized or decriminalized all drugs. Yep. Um, I, I know there's movements in the United States right now, for example, to de- decriminalize and even legalize in some states psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course there are medical, uh, studies going on, for example, at John Hopkins right now, uh, to see, you know, all kinds of benefits that, that might be there for different kinds of, of mental illnesses and different kinds of therapies that might be administered through MDMA and other, uh, similar, similar drugs. Uh, what is your view on 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 psychedelics? Do you think that they could play a role in some of the things we're talking about? Yeah,
1: de- uh, definitely. Um, it's just as much as the overview effect is. I guess you could say um, part of our kind of cornerstone philosophy, if you will. Um, psychedelics is the other cornerstone, if you will. Uh, it's the it's the other one. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be. It would. I wouldn't have eclectic spacewalk without without psychedelics. Um, I wouldn't so, have. So talk, so talk yeah, to me
0: a little bit about. Sure. What you think is valuable there, because I think a lot of people listening, especially people who've never done them before,
1: mm-hmm. tend to
0: have a very stigmatized and biased oh, yeah. view that these are just, well, one, some people think that they're da- they're a lot more dangerous than they actually are.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I won't say that there's no danger involved. There are certainly certain issues, a certain mind states that uh, people need to be wary of if they're going to be experimenting with these substances. Yep. Um, that being said... I I, I I am generally in the camp of wanting to at least have the conversation, right, more mm-hmm. out in public mm-hmm. about psychedelics, which have been popular in the United States, at least since the uh, it, since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of up until very recently been a very underground thing. You sort of, you know, you do it with people that are kind of in the know and you don't really talk yeah. about it and you definitely don't talk about it at work, you know, uh, and, yeah, and now yeah, it's yeah. finally starting to come out of the shadows. But to get rid of some of that stigma, I think it's important that we talk about these things with some care and that we take it very seriously. Absolutely. And we're not we're not careless about um, asserting that they're necessarily going to solve all of our problems or, uh, you know, making ridiculous claims that might undermine uh, the beneficial effects that might be there.
1: Cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and I appreciate that. that. That's that's big, because honestly, like. I will have to say, like one of the biggest things with anything I've learned, just maturing, is like you know, with great power comes with great responsibility. It's like, well, you're, you, it's you got to be responsible with these things because they're very powerful. Any anything that uh, you know under that moniker, very very powerful, especially. If you're going to ing- ingest something into your body, I mean, that's, an, that, that's like a non-starter uh, before, you know, you kind of just need to be knowing. I mean, we'll, we can talk about information flows on, on that, like how, you know, in the 60s, the war on drugs, et cetera. But, I mean, to, 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 to really kind of bring it back home and not to get too off that, I'll give you a little bit of color, if you will, of my, my story is that basically I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, under, you know, in the, in the, and I was born in 1988. So right in the heart of the '90s, you know, 2000s, but in the South, uh, it, it's very uh, taboo. You know what I mean? Not just psychedelics, cannabis. I mean, cannabis was like equated to like doing heroin. You know what I mean? Like, like that's how it was for me. And alcohol and tobacco were just like whatever. And so that again, like, was one of my kind of like what you know what i mean like why is everyone you know totally okay with this but it's but but they're not with that and then moving to california obviously um my cannabis like uh you know because for me it's like i grew up going to dare i grew up like everything is kind of like the whole deal of like you're what what you put in your body in some instances but then also you know it's this very paternalistic like you know what what you you should uh make sure you ask daddy and mommy kind of deal it's not like this introspective thing at all so uh, long story short of growing up in that kind of regime and, and whatever, it's like, I didn't smoke, uh, cannabis. And when I went to school, actually in, 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 school, I was actually anti-cannabis. Like, and that's what I think a lot of my story is, is like, I'm, I'm learning, you know what I mean? I'm constantly learning. Like I was in, you know, living in, in Tennessee where it was a, a, you know, draconian, you know, more so drug regime. And then all of a sudden, like I, I had a, to certain way of thinking about drugs in general, and so then when I realized and and you know smoked cannabis for the first time when it wasn't weird and then like had a good time and some experiences, it was a it was a kind of a changing moment of me that just in general like not authority figures etc. But then psychedelics was a little bit more. Um, I was honestly freaked out and, and rightly so, you know, kind of scared about the experience about what it is because I had heard all this stuff. Like that's, that's real trauma. I don't want to say trauma, but that is real stuff of like being indoctrinated for years upon years. And then all of a sudden something all seems kind of interesting. And unless you want to take that plunge, uh, for me, it was information. So I started reading. I, I read Albert Hoffman's LSD, My Problem Child. Um, and so he was a synthesizer of LSD. He yeah. talks about all this. I read the stories about everything. Um, not to mention, you know, the cannabis and reformat and all that kind of jazz. But like specifically with LSD was what came out with from me was that after I read that book, I just got the the sense of, wait a second, this guy was like the most conservative chemist in the world. Like he, he wasn't trying to do this at all. You know what I mean? At all. And so he just kind of happened upon this. And so there's a a interesting kind of history of LSD and and kind of coming out and so like I I did I I basically took a year of the time I wanted to take LSD till the time I actually took LSD. Um, same thing, it was maybe six months for my, uh, mushrooms as well. Um, a lot of this stuff was, I'd heard so many short horror stories about set and setting and, and who you're doing it with and all this kind of stuff. And I had done the brain imaging study I, or I had, uh, donated to it, but I had not even taken it myself, but I was, uh, you know, for the fostering of scientific knowledge and where we could go with the brain and consciousness and all, all this other jazz. And so I was interested and, and I did it and it was very transformative. Um, it was, uh, like there was a barrier almost that I had with the other person I was with it was no longer there anymore that was mm-hmm. just kind of like communicating and so not to get into trip stories or anything like that but it's very it was a very again, meaningful switch of how I saw things. And then with magic mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, it was more a natural thing. I was out in nature camping, you know, and it was like this, you know, you look at the fucking leaf for 10 minutes, you know, kind of deal. Um, But all of those kind of things, it really got me to the point of realizing the, the big, big thing that before we had talked about, there's not really one, you know, truism or anything. And if there was some, it would be maybe, uh, you know, truth at any co- uh, at, at the lowest cost is, is, is that, et, et cetera. But the latest finding in neurosciences sciences, is that, like, we filter out the real world. You know what I mean? And Donald Hoffman talks about this in his, his book, Case Against Reality, that, like, we are a sensorial species. You know what I mean? Like, we only interact with reality, that outside uh, big R reality word, with um, our our senses through our brain and so psychedelics it basically doesn't take you somewhere it basically cleans the lenses that you basically have have through experience and and ev- you know evolution or whatever have like basically not seen it and so for me i think that's a transformative and powerful experience that each person almost I don't want to say has to go through because there's different ways to go about this and we can get into different modalities and and things like that Um, because to be quite frank as you said it just kind of speeds it up I've been going to therapy for the last you know year and I think that that is one of the most transformative things that a person can do for their mental health and I didn't really know that before I thought it was like this like esoteric thing that people did to get get you know find meaning in their lives or whatever but and it's honestly like I've learned more in in therapy over a longer term what I did in, you know, one session of psychedelics now and for me. Now, this is the disclaimer. I've done this recreationally. Now, this is not even to talk about like like uh, the next level, you know what I mean, which is, you know, institutional uh, or, or or large scale, uh, things like that. But but for the main thing with la- that large scale is I'm not really advocating for um everyone to just go out and get wasted i'm not every advocating to everyone go out to a grateful dead concert now if that's your prerogative do your thing but i am almost advocating that in the future just like cryptocurrency may be a absolute that every single person has in their in their repertoire you know of some type of digital currency or digital money is that sometime along the way of your life you should under you know professional circumstances of with a therapist and the power of a psychedelic have a mystical kind of experience because I think that's one of the other things that through history that we've gone like the one of the reasons why we're, we're atomized and you know so you know lonely and stuff is that we don't have these real communal things that we used to do. I wrote the essay you know the second psychedelic renaissance. The first psychedelic renaissance we had in the 60s, but arguably the first first thing that we started was thousands and thousands of years ago. Like I I, I mentioned in the essay, there was cave paintings of nine thousand years ago, you know, in ancient, ancient Tanzania of rock art of like these figures that have mushroom heads. And it's like, what? Like they 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 knew, you know, they were they were getting after it in, in some ways. But then now how do we take that from the new age? Like, how do we use that like kind of um long-term ancestral use of, of of mystical experiences of spirituality of all that kind of uh, that whole side and then kind of bring it up with 2021 white coat science you know what i mean and like i don't want to say that that's the rubric or the line but then that is has been i guess through mental health and through the sciences and me- medicine to be the most you know kind of productive way and um for me again I'm not trying to advocate that that's the only way. I think there are other ways of meditation, et cetera, could probably get there. But I think the mystical experience or a change in perspective, whichever way you want to slice that, you could say they're either or and and the same thing. But um, each individual person having that I think is going to be a future, uh, Mm. much like it was back in the day, not to get – what what is it the agogi and spartan and stuff like that but like rites of passage you know yeah R- you know rites of passage was a thing in the university you know when i was even going to the university 20 you know 10 years ago that was something of a rite of passage and then now it's going to be a new or rite of passage and i think the psychedelics and some type of integrated with like real mental health therapy um fit, so you don't just kind of go off the wayside uh in your ways of thinking really have a coherent thing about it I think that that is going to be not only part of our future but then part of the the linchpin or part of the mechanisms that are repertoire that we have for human flourishing
0: yeah i definitely um i I definitely think that they're going to be part of a toolkit right I'm not exactly sure what form that's going to take
1: uh
0: i'm not entirely i i think that the medicalization of them is something that uh was done mostly um in order to kind of make it like approved get the sort of stamp Mm. of approval yeah good point I would be more interested in kind of the rite of passage. Uh, I think it's important that we also acknowledge the, the you know, the ancient history of initiation and, uh, you know, mystical experiences and, you know, guided by a shaman and things like that. that oh yeah. Um, the way in which these, these experiences actually grew out of a very um, non-scientific, non-medical mm, yes uh, context. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure how all that's going to shake out in terms of what the future should look like, right. but uh, I want to make sure that we're also not only allowing one way, which is through Western medicine, for these to be brought back into the public. And sphere.
1: and and I will say that too that like there is a there's a maybe a nefarious side of psychedelics or maybe the trade or the travel of psychedelics you know going down to the Amazon to you know trip on ayahuasca. Well, oh yeah, Lost there's the whole get, tourism. That's yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean honestly though with with thinking about psychedelics in in, in general though like that toolkit,
0: just, just be open.
1: You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to say like, uh, yeah, to
0: do it. We don't, we don't take any responsibility. No, 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 any no, no. Actions no, that are taken on this No, podcast. no, no, no.
1: That's a good disclaimer. No, but, but honestly here, I'll leave you with that one last quote, um, that I think comes from, uh, that, uh, that I think sums it up really. And he was from the godfather of this type of therapy. So again, in our first psychedelic, uh, renaissance, if we, yeah. that we had in the 1960s seventies, um, there was a lot of psychopath, therapy going on. A lot of stuff was dealing with a lot of mental issues and, and stuff like that. And so Stan Groff or Stanislav Groff is basically the, the godfather of this kind of a therapy. And he says, quote, like, the potential significance of LSD and other psychedelics for psychiatry, psychiatry, uh, psychiatry, sorry, <laughs> let me start over. Potential significance of LSD and other psychedelics for psychiatry and psychology was comparable to the value of the microscope for biology or the telescope has for astronomy. So it, we're only at the at the start of, uh, of this and it's very gonna be very interesting to see like what Johns Hopkins, you mentioned, maps, Roland Griffiths, uh, even Hamilton Morris with his stuff with Bufo, Olivares and the 5-MeO-DMT. Actually, I just wanted to shout out mm-hmm. that right now. Biosynthesis t-shirt, you should uh, check it out. Bufo Olivares, uh, just Google that, you'll find it, Hamilton Morris. But but yeah, um, that, that that's, I think, it, it's one of the things that, and, and again, Alex, one of the things that in dialogue and, and discussion of this is, we're all just making our toolkits, you know what I mean? Like, as you said, I'll, I'll use your phrase, we're, you're just making a toolkit, I'm making a toolkit, our community's making a toolkit, but then we need to really start thinking seriously about what the toolkit of the world is. Now, not to get too abstract, not to get too whatever, but what is it, you know, what does that look like? And now I think now, uh, in 2021, we've never been closer to what uh, to actually coherence of what exactly not only that toolkit could look like, but then also to go from abstraction to realness and then you know have that through line of theory to action. So yeah, I mean, it, it, what is society's toolkit? Uh, I hope Agora Politics and Eclectic Spacewalk have some some uh, influence or impact in, in that great conversation. You know, so yeah,
0: definitely. Okay, we are almost out of time, Nick. So I want to ask you two more brief questions. Sure. One of them real brief give me the answer uh if you can uh you mentioned earlier about uh having some kind of a moon base elon Uh musk and uh, jeff bezos are uh, trying to go to mars if i if i'm correct uh why the moon not mars and what's up what's going on with your moon base what are you going to be doing up there (laughs) good question good question um okay so
1: yeah yeah real quick um I think the moon, honestly, it's it's just more of like sheer proximity and logistics at this point. In a hundred years from now, the Mars, Mars and, and outer kind of things will be uh, available. And honestly, one of my favorite short films is called Wanderers by Eric Nyquist. It all talks about going and basically wondering the, the the solar system and how you could go on a moon of you know Uranus and then jump off and you could literally just float for three hours down because the gravity is so different. So like, I'm all about that, you know what I mean? Uh, but But it's practicality, you know? So we haven't gone outside of near Earth, Earth orbit NEO since 1976, and so that um, basically uh, that means a lot of different things. We sent a lot of moon mission, you know, moon things to to the moon, and those were astronauts that were basically hitting uh, cosmic waves, different things about that nature. So we really ha- we don't have a lot of body of research uh, yet to what the what it does to the human body in space, and so going to the moon is. Three days away, and that's it. Going to Mars, you're on a two-year round-trip ticket, homie. You know, just so you know. I mean, I I I literally did an analog Mars simulation uh, as a crew journalist, and so like in Southern Utah to mimic some of this stuff. And so I was I was in the middle uh, of a habitat for two weeks. You know, had to do the depressurization. You know, do with the whole speed of light. You know, stuff like that. And it's like I'm telling you, you think you want to go to Mars. But going to Mars is not going to be fun. Nine months in a fucking tin can where you're in a spacesuit, you know what I mean, mostly, or in a spaceship, you know, uh, and it gets small really quick. Good luck with all the people that you're in there with, you know, talking with, uh, close quarters. You can't go outside for literally two years. So there's no going outside for two years. The best you're going to get is inside of a habitat or inside of your personal spacesuit habitat. And that's the same on on, on the moon. But like. On, on Mars, you're going to have to deal with um, a lot, of, just a lot of different things that we are just not not there yet. And I read yeah. this book by Casey Handmere, who's a Ph.D., like NASA, you know, quant geek person. And he basically is like, you know, talking about the, the we still haven't done the, the biggest human feat in space history yet. And that's taking off from a different planet. So we've never taken off from Mars before. What is that gravity like? What is the thing? And if you mess that up, you're fucked. And so we, we've we done some of the hard part is to get to Mars. We've landed rovers. We've done all these things. But the infrastructure and what Elon Musk is saying, I think he's just a really good marketer. I think he's used a lot using his capital and his VC and his influence to really like garner up this. Is there a way there to Mars? Sure. Or do we need to study it? Sure. But I think the real thing that could could could, um you know more feasible is more of a moon base it's 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 three uh you know days away so you know what i mean like even um in terms of uh safety logistics and i guess the 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 biggest thing also is that um you can see earth that's my biggest thing like if you go to mars that's fine but i don't know if you guys have seen the, the pictures from curiosity but the earth is just this little like speck. And it's like, man, I don't know what psychology does at that point, you know, to a human like of knowing you're that far away from like sustenance or life. And so the moon is 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 a lot of different ways, uh, logistically more feasible. And so I guess the second part of your question, um, what, is, what, what the fuck is a moon base? Well, I just started thinking about all these different things of like profitability and like, you know, uh, doing things for the commons and like all these other things. And I just thought, well, what is like, what would be the most stretch goal for the commons? You know what I mean? Like, What would be the most crazy kind of stretch goal? And and it really gets down to like, what they're doing with the Long Now Foundation or like what the seed bank in Iceland's doing. It's like trying to preserve the best of humanity, you know, whatever, just for our own self, not just for selfish regions of like blowing up, but then also to marvel at our ingenuity and curiosity is that that would be a way to like, basically make the profitability. So doing something like, uh, 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 mining uh, ice you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To actually make money and making rocket fuel, et cetera, or through tourism, you know, to, to have, you know, people stay there like a camp or, you know, some type of whatever. But the biggest thing is like, you would almost think about it as like the quintessential, like highest research station. Um, I don't know if you, uh, I, I for my analog in- simulation, the next step that I've always wanted to do is like this, the the, the NASA ones, which is the high seas, which is like a nine month thing in the middle of a volcano in Hawaii, or you go under, yeah, yeah, or, or underwater. Um, off the coast of uh, Florida which is you know an, another thing to live in these uh, different in, in environments um, but the, the biggest thing is, is for me is, is is what we do is like Antarctica Antarctica mm-hmm. is is the model you know what I mean the harshest of harshest conditions but doing the most frontier of frontier shit and then like yeah. how you get there some people get there um, and then yeah I, I don't I don't know exactly but that's basically the the stretch goal
0: <laughs> cool well awesome uh, this has been uh, a lot of fun. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Nicholas. Uh, last thing before I let you go, uh, what are you going to be up to and where can people find you?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, well, recently, um, yeah, or sorry. Recently, we basically did a couple videos for some clients. You can kind of go to our uh, website, eclecticspacewalk.com um, in the productions. We've done some stuff for some clients in, in that regard. Uh, new podcasts as well. Um, new essays, just sort of uh, an essay about Technopoly. But, um, yeah, moving forward, basically gearing up for the last summer in L.A., you know, going to enjoy some tacos, some loquats, some, you know, soccer, some et cetera, because this fall I'm going to start uh, my my master's program. So that's going to be, you know, a two year slog uh, doing that. But uh, hey, it's Germany. Uh, hopefully it's going to be an interesting kind of like uh, cultural change for change for me and and, and my girlfriend as well. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're just kind of getting started now. I think we have a good foundation, as we say, and, and we're just building the framing. Uh, so if you want to be part of the furniture or you want to be part of the decorations, you know, feel free to reach out, collaborate. Uh, always open to, 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 to everything. You know, praise, constructive criticism, uh, always open for an open dialogue about, you know, pretty much any subject. So appreciate the talk, Alex. Really do.
0: Yeah. Awesome. See you next time.